Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ertube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Hello, you sentient balls of stardust. This is Struggle Care, the self-care podcast by a host that hates the term self-care. And today I have a guest that I'm really excited about, Dr. Kristen Neff. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Casey. Happy to be here. I have to admit that I have been a little under the weather for like three days, and I was like, no matter what, I will not miss this recording. Okay, so the reason why I wanted to ask you to come on the podcast is because you have been such a huge influence on me. When you talk about self-compassion and the research behind it, that was a real turning point for me in really starting to heal and grow and get better in a way that sort of leaned me out of the self-improvement kind of genre of getting better Uh and more into the actual healing of feeling better. And so I wanted to ask you, how did self-compassion become your main area of focus in your research? Well, for me, it also started as a personal practice. I needed self-compassion. I was a mess. I, you know, I, I didn't invent the idea. I learned about self-compassion when I first learned about mindfulness meditation. And it just made such an, a powerful difference to me. I was going through a very stressful time and I started being more kind and supportive to myself. And I saw that the immediate difference it made. And this was when I was actually my last year of graduate school. And then I did two years of postdoctoral study with one of the country's leading self-esteem researchers. And I studied self-concept development. And I started to see how, we can come back to this, how self-compassion didn't have some of the problems associated with the need for high self-esteem or that kind of endless treadmill of self-improvement. So when I got to UT Austin, where I still am, I kind of thought, well, no one's really researched this before, but heck, if they can study self-esteem, they can study self-compassion. So I started researching it, you know, really shortly after I got there, about around 2000. And um, I'm just so blown away by not only how beneficial it is, but the applications to so many areas of life. I mean, basically any area of life in which there's suffering or struggle, which there's a lot, it's relevant. So very quickly, it just became my life's work. I became devoted not only to researching it the last 10 years, figuring out how to teach other people to practice being more self-compassionate. Because it's not just an idea. It's not just like a trait that some people have and some people don't. It really is a practice that anyone can learn. So how would you define self-compassion? And then I also 
I'm curious how you would define self-esteem because I feel like most of us, I mean, I grew up, I was born in the 80s, I'm kind of a 90s kid. And I feel like a lot of the self-help world when I was sort of growing up and even today was this heavy focus on self-esteem. I remember going through rehab at 16 and doing all these treatment assignments about self-esteem. I remember having to look in the mirror and say, I am okay today and people like me and I write like giving myself these positive affirmations. And I remember right. thinking, this is not working. I do not yeah. believe these things. So yeah. can you tell us what the difference is? Yeah. So let me start by defining what self-compassion is and then I'll come back to self-esteem. So self-compassion is really just like compassion for others. You know, the, in Latin, compassion, being with suffering. How are we with the tough stuff? Whether that suffering comes from, you know, you're in a hurricane or COVID or something difficult happens externally, or you're suffering because you feel you aren't good enough or you've made a mistake or you feel like a failure, those types of sources. And really, it, just like we would with a friend, we naturally be warm and supportive when our friends, hopefully for a good friend, if they say they're having a hard time, we're, we're present for them, we listen, we pay attention to them. And also the difference between compassion and pity is, hey, I've been there. It's an inherently connected stance. It's not like I feel sorry for myself or I feel sorry for you. It's just recognizing that everyone struggles, everyone's imperfect. That's what human life means, really. And so those are the three components, mindfulness, being aware of difficulty, common humanity, recognizing that this is shared, and then kindness, warmth, support. So the thing about self-compassion is it's really unconditional in the sense that it's there for us. You know, we can be kind and supportive toward ourselves when things are going well, but we're also we're especially kind and supportive toward ourselves when things aren't going well. The difference between self-esteem and self-compassion is you might say self-compassion is a stable, unconditional friend. Self-esteem is pretty much a fair-weather friend, right? So what do I mean by self-esteem? It's important to define our terms. I'm referring to a positive judgment or evaluation of self, like I'm good or people like me. I'm great. These are positive judgments and value. I, you know, I'm good as opposed to bad. So the thing about self-esteem is that Nothing wrong with having self-esteem. It's actually psychologically better to, to like yourself than to hate yourself. The problem is that it's contingent. It depends. Again, it's unstable. So typically, it depends on, first of all, feeling special and above average. It's not okay to be average. If I said, Casey, yeah, your podcast is pretty average. Admit <laughs> it, you'd feel hurt, right? I would feel mm -hmm. hurt if you said, Kristen, your work is pretty average. It's not okay to be average in our society, which means that technically, if we all have to be above average, it's technically impossible for us to all have high self-esteem at the same time. So we're, we're setting ourselves also in this sort of comparison. Like, is that person better than me or smarter than me or more attractive than me or whatever it is? And that can create social disconnection. For instance, um, we know one of the reasons kids start to bully others is to raise their self-esteem. I'm the cool kid. You're the nerdy kid. I'm picking on you. I've got more power compared to you. That raises my self-esteem. So that's a problem. A really big problem is that it's contingent on success, whatever we value. And so usually what we value for our self-esteem is social approval. Like you said, other people like me. Well, that's great when they like you, but what happens when they don't like you? And how are you going to be authentic if your self-esteem is totally dependent on whether or not they like you, right? Or how we look. Actually, for men and women, perceived attractiveness is huge. What happens when you start getting older or, you know, you don't look the way the supermodels look, or you don't have the filter on your camera when you post it on Instagram, right? Your self-esteem takes a hit. And then also performance, right? So we have high self-esteem when we succeed, but what happens when we fail or make a mistake? We feel badly about ourselves. 
So the difference with self-compassion is when we make a mistake or other people don't like us or, you know, we're feeling inadequate in some way, that's precisely when we give ourselves compassion. Oh, well, it's only human to make mistakes. What can I learn from this, right? Okay, so I'm imperfect. That's part of being human. That's okay. Whoever said I was supposed to be perfect. Other people don't like me sometimes. Ouch, that hurts. Well, can I like myself at least? You know, do I really want to twist myself to contort to meet other people's expectations if it's not true to me? So those are the types of difference. So just to show you, in one study I did on comparing self-esteem and self-compassion, we found that the stability of self-worth, they're both forms of self-worth, but self-compassion is unconditional because I'm a flawed human being. Self-esteem is usually conditional because I'm the way I want to be or because other people like me or because I'm better than others. So the self-worth linked to self-compassion was much more stable over time than the self-worth that comes from self-esteem. It makes me think also when you talk about self-esteem being sort of contingent on how you are in comparison to others or how others think of you, that's not always lined up with your actual values. Like people can like you for the wrong reasons and hate you for the right reasons. And and, and so it that makes it even more turbulent in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the biggest findings of the research is that self-compassion is linked to authenticity, right? You know, with some of the feedback, how is your self-compassion practice helped me personally? Well, I'm still very flawed. I still got a lot of problems, but I'm authentically flawed who I am because my self-worth is contingent on other people liking me. And that's one of the the gifts it gives you. You can be your true self. And also, by the way, it doesn't mean some people think it means you're complacent. You aren't going to try to change or improve. That's not the case at all. It's why do you want to improve? I want to improve not to be acceptable as I am. I'm already acceptable. I want to improve because I care about myself and I don't want to keep suffering and causing problems with myself and others. And what that does is when it's safe to fail and make mistakes, that means I can actually learn from them. If I'm just full of shame, oh, I'm such a failure, everyone hates me. It's not exactly a conducive mindset to like figure out what happened or try to learn from a situation or try again. So it's actually a better motivator. It's a more effective motivator than the motivator of shame or self-criticism. I'm so glad you said that because when I talk online. And so, you know, my focus is mainly on how people care for their homes and their self in periods of struggle. Uh And one of the major pushbacks I get is, well, if I'm being compassionate towards myself, when my house is a mess and everything is dirty and I'm not really caring for myself, like, won't that just enable me, just give me permission to stay stuck? And it's interesting because in my own experience, it's the opposite. There's nothing more motivating than real self-compassion. Yeah. And we know that empirically. So here's the difference. So I I like to term these fierce and tender self-compassion. Tender self-compassion is about unconditional self-acceptance. It's also about accepting the fact that life's imperfect. We have difficult emotions. It's kind of the acceptance of the imperfection of life. Fear self-compassion is about taking action, right? What can we do in terms of our behaviors and our situations not to suffer? So even while unconditionally accepting yourself, aimed in the fact that your house is a mess, it doesn't mean that you're a less worthy person because that your house is a mess. You don't have to identify with it. But if your house being a mess is causing you suffering, if it's making you harder for you to you know, relax or to get things done, or it's actually causing stress in your life, then it's actually not helping you. So compassion is about the alleviation of suffering, right? So if you're doing things that are causing you suffering, like the way you live or or something that's causing you suffering, it's not compassionate to let it slide, but it's aimed at our behaviors and our situations. We need to try to change our behaviors and our situations 
to maximize well-being. At the same time that we as people, our worth is like given. The fact that we are an imperfect human being is all we need. That's the only bar we need to check to be worthy of compassion, which remember is kindness and support. It doesn't mean, you know, maybe you aren't doing things right. It's not fake. You don't say, oh, Kristen, you're great. Actually, Kristen, and this has happened, that was a really unkind thing you said that really hurt that person's feelings. That's self-compassion. Now saying, and you're a terrible, horrible person, I hate you, that's not self-compassion, but saying, Kristen, you that what you just said was really unkind. Hey, I understand you are stressed. It's only human. It happens sometimes, but this person's hurting. What can we do to try to repair the situation? So for instance, we find that self-compassionate people are more able to take responsibility for their mistakes or things they do because it's safe to do so. And they're more willing to try to repair them again, because they've had the the emotional resource to do so. So I want to take a, a short break here. And then when we come back, I want to talk about that word tender. I've never met a free trial I didn't like or a budget I didn't listen to, which is why Rocket Money is perfect for me. And it might be perfect for you too. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month so I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. And they send me emails keeping me updated with where I am on that budget. Rocket Money will even try and negotiate lower bills for you up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users. They can find and cancel your unwanted subscriptions, and they have saved people over a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle, rocketmoney.com slash struggle. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we're alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes a life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present, when the future no longer is a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean when you have a child to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and was named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, we're back with Dr. Kristen Neff. I love that word tender because when I was trained to be a therapist, we talked a lot about this term unconditional positive regard that we're supposed to have for our clients. Mm -hmm. And when I heard you use that word tender, something kind of switched for me when I realized that when I am compassionate towards myself, it's not necessarily an unconditional positive regard because sometimes I haven't done something positive, but it's an unconditionally tender regard because it's, it's that connected. It's an unconditionally positive evaluation, but to the extent that warmth and kindness is a positive emotion, which it is, it is positive, right? A really good analogy, I think an intuitive one, is an ideally compassionate parent. You know, most of us are not ideally compassionate raised by them, but if you imagine an ideally compassionate parent, 
that parent loves their child unconditionally. When their child fails, does something wrong, just being hurtful, the bottom line is, I love you. I'm here for you, right? But a compassionate parent doesn't stop there. A compassionate parent wants to say, oh, that's fine. Get all this, you know, skip school, use drugs, whatever, you know, don't worry about it. That's not, because that's causing their child suffering. A compassionate parent is, I care about you. How can I help? Sometimes it may even be kind of tough drawing boundaries. Listen, it's really important that you follow these rules because if you don't follow these rules, you aren't going to learn the skills you need to get by in life. You know, that is true love. And so the same thing with ourselves. The complacency is not caring for ourselves. It's actually undermining ourselves. But shame and self-hatred is also undermining ourselves. So we can combine unconditional warmth, support, being there for ourselves with some real hard honesty. You know, this really needs to change. It's not working for me. You know, if I want to be happy, if I don't want to suffer, I got to either me, I have to change or my situation. So fear self-compassion is also like, I think, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement or the Me Too movement, these are fierce self-compassion movements. When people rise up and say, hey, this not, you can't treat me this way. I'm valuable. You know, this, this situation is wrong or maybe your work situation or you're being treated unfairly or, or, or maybe you're in a relationship where you're not being treated well. Part of self-compassion is taking action. Again, either behaviors, yours or others, or situations to try to um, engender well-being and alleviate suffering. Well, and I find that when self-esteem is sort of the measure and there's a lot of shame involved, people yeah. can't be accountable because when that truth is being brought to them about something that's either not going right or something they've done that's harmful, they can't get, unless you can get to a place, I don't even know how to, it's like, we're such social creatures that when I'm feeling the social rejection, yeah. that is the only thing I can feel. It's the only thing I'm preoccupied with. And it's the only, yeah. literally my fight or flight kicks in and goes, yeah. I have to find out how to be acceptable again. And when yeah, that's happening, so, I'm yeah. inherently centering me and I'm not even able to look or be accountable to the thing that I might have done. Exactly. Shame is incredibly self-focused. I mean, it's human. It's natural. It's, we're, it, we evolved to feel shame. but it, So it's self-focused and it shuts down our ability to learn. When we're flooded with shame, we actually can't learn from our mistakes. All we can do is like hide in a corner and say, I'm so terrible. Please don't hate me. And again, shame still arises for me because it is actually evolutionary emotion. So shame arises and like, okay, human beings feel shame. That's okay. This hurts. How can I help myself in the moment? You know, and often helping yourself in the moment means, well, maybe I need to apologize. Maybe I need to do something different. But here's the thing. Some sources of shame are from social injustice, prejudice. So for instance, we've done a lot of research with teens who are, you know, LGBT plus community who are shamed all the time. So in that case, it's like, screw you, shame. I'm not going to buy into this message. Perfectly wonderful, just as I am. So, but you know, if the shame's like, in my case, did say something mean to someone, then the shame is playing a function and saying, hey, Kristen, who, you know, that was not good. And then I can move on from there. If we get stuck in it, that's when it really holds us back. Yeah. I remember having these feelings when I first entered rehab and people would try to help myself low self-worth by saying things like, oh, but you're so pretty and you're so smart and you're so these things. And there was this real sense of, you know, no matter how many good attributes you try to ascribe to me, yeah. I have this sense of if you only knew. And I think that's where that authenticity yes. comes into place because it really felt like it will not penetrate my heart and make any difference unless yeah. I'm being fully known by that person. 
And it wasn't until I was able to get authentic and honest and let everybody see kind of all of the ugly insides, then receive that sort of compassion from others that I was in a place to actually hear. And here are some issues that we may want to look at, Casey. Absolutely. You know, and the slight problem with that, although it's natural, is that we don't want our compassion to be contingent either. Everyone, you know, people in prison or people who've made horrible mistakes in their life, they're worthy of compassion as well. All human beings are worthy of compassion, right? It's something that's an intrinsic human right, compassion. Again, that doesn't mean indulgence. That doesn't mean letting you get, you know, what you do for people to try to help society or help them is, is a different issue. But our worth isn't dependent on our attributes. You know, and also these, our attributes are constantly changing, right? We all get old. I'm getting older now. I'm seeing that one. You know, we, we go up and down. None of this is really stable. The only thing stable is that, at least in the course of our lifetime, is that we are aware human beings who are experiencing life. And that's actually the source of compassion. And, you know, you could get spiritual on this if you wanted. I have no problem going there. It's not like generated by our small selves. It's part of being a part of this larger interconnected universe. You know, we're one in many ways. We're all part of this larger interdependent whole. So our worth comes from being part of this larger independent whole as opposed to being ego-based, like because I went to grad school and because I did this or I look a certain way, that's where my worth comes from. Egocentric way of looking at it. Do you think that in order to have self-compassion, you have to be able to humanize others first? Like if you're sort of seeing others as if you're being really harshly judgmental to others, if you're having to kind of push others down to push yourself up, if you've got whether it's internal bias or all these things, like I imagine it would be hard to extend yourself the grace and compassion that you're not extending to others or that you believe others don't, because if they don't deserve it, then how could I deserve it? Yeah, so there's a lot of pathways to compassion and a lot of different blocks to compassion. I, from what my understanding, also with my research, it's not like some people say you have to have compassion for yourself before you can have compassion for others. That doesn't seem to be true. A lot of people are very compassionate to others, not oneself. I wouldn't necessarily say that you have to be compassionate for others before yourself either, because there are probably some people who, whatever reason, can connect with their own experience and not those of others. So I wouldn't say there's a pathway, but some of the principles are the same, right? The principles of um, understanding the nature of humanity and the fact that, you know, we aren't totally in control of our actions. We do our best, but there's so many causes and conditions, you know, culture, history, genetics, environment, so many things that are out of our control, even our thoughts. I mean, how good are you at controlling your thoughts, you know? No, exactly. Right. So, so many things are out of our control. Understanding principles like that definitely help foster compassion. For some people, that's the doorway in. It's because they can see it with others that they might be able to then make a U-turn and do it for themselves. Yeah, I wouldn't be comfortable saying it has to be the case. But what we do know is when you learn to be more self-compassionate, it does increase compassion for others. Because Mm. again, we're understanding the bigger picture of our shared humanity. What it also does big time is actually gives us the resources to care for others. Not everyone, but most people are pretty compassionate and caring to others and not to themselves. But what happens is they burn out. They give and they give and they give. And, you know, they always say yes to other people and they're always trying to help others. And they're, they deny themselves. They don't meet their own needs. And eventually their cup runs dry. Mm-hmm. So um, self-compassion is very good for decreasing caregiver burnout. 
Hmm. So so let me ask you this. You published a lot of research on the connection between self-compassion and psychological functioning. I think a lot of people see things like self-compassion. They think that's nice and people should feel nice about themselves, but they don't necessarily understand that it's not just a nice thing to teach people, that it actually helps raise their psychological level of functioning, that it actually can be a way of them getting better and feeling better and and sort of that, you know, the high tide that raises all ships. Can you talk some about that connection? Yeah. So again, so if you think of the word compassion with suffering, how are we with suffering, right? And it's usually the suffering, the painful emotions, the painful thoughts that derails us psychologically might lead to things like addiction or suicidal ideation or eating disorders or depression or anxiety. Because when difficult feelings or thoughts or situations arise, we get overwhelmed by them. We aren't able to cope effectively with them. We get overwhelmed and we're still just trying to cope by whatever means necessary. We're just trying to survive. And so by having a resource, which is warmth, care, support, kindness, what can I do to help? Kind of unconditional self-acceptance, but also the realizing that maybe how can I change that in a way that's helpful and supportive? That resource is, first of all, you might call it a type of emotion regulation because it helps us being so overwhelmed by the difficulty. It also is a form of resilience. We might call it a form of resilience and, and coping. It's huge, right? It's not just good feelings. It's a way of approaching difficulty. In fact, sometimes it doesn't feel good at all. You know, it's really a loud opening to the incredible pain and grief and distress and all the difficult stuff. We open to it. We don't sugarcoat it. But we do open to it with love. And it's the love, the warmth that's actually the strength that helps us get through it. In fact, I think if you don't do it, if you just kind of grin and bear it or just shut down, you can function, but it's going to come back to get your body's going to start holding all the trauma you're experiencing and you aren't processing it. One of the things, the ability to open to pain with warmth allows us to process difficult emotions so they aren't stuck in our body so that we can work through them, but so we can kind of integrate them in our understanding of ourselves and the world. If we don't, then all that stuff just gets stuck, gets shoved in, it's going to lead to things like heart attacks or, you know, physical problems or coming back and like traumatic re-experiencing. From my point of view, self-compassion is really essential to leading a healthy life. And we're also showing that it's like basically a marker of good therapy. doesn't matter what type of therapy you use. If it's good therapy, it's going to raise your self-compassion. It's kind of what it is, is how do I, can I relate to difficulty, suffering, stress, difficult thoughts in a way that's, that helps rather than harms. It's kind of like self-evident from my point of view. Like, well, of course we want to do that. Why wouldn't we? Okay. So when we come back from this short break, I'm going to ask you a series of sort of negative messages and talk about the difference about what would that look like from a self-esteem standpoint versus a self-compassion standpoint. I still remember where I was the first time it hit me. I maybe do have ADHD. And it's funny, I posted a TikTok the other day about having ADHD and a good friend of mine texted me and said, remember when you swore to me you didn't have ADHD? Oh, goodness. Well, listen, if you relate to that at any point in your life, I want to share a podcast that you should tune into. It's called ADHD Aha, hosted by Laura Key. It's candid stories from people who share the moment it clicked that they or someone they know has ADHD. In each episode, you'll hear heartfelt interviews about the unexpected emotional and even funny ways that ADHD symptoms can surface for adults. And it doesn't always look the way we thought it would. So check it out. To listen to ADHD Aha, search for ADHD Aha in your podcast app. 
That's ADHD, AHA, with AHA spelled A-H-A. Remember in 2018 when Border Patrol separated thousands of refugee kids from their parents, deported those parents back to their home countries while keeping the kids in the United States? Well, believe it or not, six years later, there are hundreds of families who have still not been reunited. Although we as a community may feel hopeless at times, I recently learned about an organization called El Otro Lado, which works to reunify families. They provide holistic legal and humanitarian support to refugees, deportees, and other migrants in the U.S. and Tijuana through a multidisciplinary, client-centered, harm-reduction-based practice. Since 2018, they've reunified over 100 refugee families ripped apart by Trump's zero-tolerance policy. Once reunited, Al Otro Lado helps each family find legal representation, housing, and the counseling that they need in order to heal and get on their feet. You can find the link to donate to El Otro Lado in the description of this episode or go to gum.fm slash charity and donate today. You can also consider volunteering with the organization, which offers opportunities that are both in-person and virtual. The best way to get involved is by filling out an application on their website, alotrolado.org slash volunteer. That's A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O. Okay, so the idea being that let's say that I'm going about my day and I make a mistake at work. And the first thing that comes to my mind is me going, oh, I'm so stupid. I think when we come from like a self-esteem perspective, we're often told that the way to combat that is to go, no, you're smart. When it's like, well, but in that moment, like I wasn't, that was actually me not being able to think through something or that was actually a mistake that I made. And so I think that's why for so many people that often feels really hollow as a response. Like, what do you mean replace the negative messages with positive ones? I don't believe that I'm smart. I I made a stupid mistake. But what would self-compassion sound like in that moment? Yeah. So it certainly is not positive thinking. And you're right, that falls flat. You don't say, I am smart. There's a couple of things you can do. First of all, one of the things about self-compassion is, remember, it's kind of separating ourselves from our behaviors or the situations. So yeah, it was a stupid mistake. It doesn't mean that you're stupid. It also doesn't mean you're not stupid. In a way, the kind of what you are is irrelevant, (laughs) right? Because you are a human being who did the best you could in the moment, but there might be a way you could do better next time, right? So it would be like, okay, that behavior was not good. It didn't work out, right? Maybe it was a stupid mistake. But me, first thing you do is give yourself tender compassion for the pain of that. Oh, oh man, that hurts. I feel ashamed. I regret it. Ouch. So you kind of, you're with your pain of that. You kind of hold it, give yourself some space, some comfort. You know, everyone makes mistakes. It's okay. But that's like step one. And then, okay, well, that didn't work out. So could I do differently next time that might be more effective? This is how we learn mistakes. And again, even if we do it more effectively next time, it's not because that'll make us a good person. We're already flawed human beings. Okay, who we are. But we want not to make mistakes because it helps us to be happy and healthy and whatever our goals are, it helps them to achieve them, right? Or do well at work, whatever our goal is. So it's really, really separating our worth as people from our behaviors and the situations we find ourselves in. Another thing, self-compassion, because compassion honors complexity, you know, it's understanding all the causes and conditions. It's also we have lots of parts of ourselves. The part of myself that made that decision maybe wasn't working that well, but maybe there was another voice or another part of myself that wasn't engaged. So instead of saying, I am bad or I am good, it's like, well, first of all, I have a lot of different parts. 
And they're neither bad nor good. It's just some of them are effective or skillful and aren't effective or skillful. And let's focus on their behaviors or what gets manifested. Our intrinsic worth is unquestioned. That's the bottom line of self-compassion. All human beings, no matter what they do, any awareness, you know, and if you think of the thoughts in your head are different than the thoughts in my head, but is your awareness different than my awareness? That's an open question. Well, and I think it's important to say that we don't have to believe that we're worthy to treat ourselves with compassion. Like it's actually not a prerequisite. Like there's a lot of people that don't believe they're worthy, but you actually like you can still treat yourself as if you are like there's no like worthiness police going to bust down the door and be like, no, no, no. Well, and the thing is, you have to ask yourself when a baby is born, do they have to like get their high school degree or it's a GED enough to be worthy? I mean, right. So it's like there's something intrinsic to being a human being who's aware is where the worthiness comes from. Now, for people who were treated by their parents as that they weren't worthy of kindness or compassion, it can be scary to have self-compassion. It can be difficult. But there's even a term we have for it called backdraft. It's like when I give myself unconditional love, I immediately remember all the conditions under which I was unloved. And that can come up. And so that's something else we have to have compassion for. You know, it's natural. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It actually means you're opening to the pain so that it can be healed, right? It has to be dealt with. It's totally natural. But yeah, it's really, the thing about compassion is it's not self-focused. It's really not about me as an individual. It's about life, the human experience, which is, again, which is intrinsically worthy of compassion. As long as you're a flawed human being, that's the only check box you have to check to be worthy of compassion. It can take I, uh, a while because we aren't taught that. But again, it, as you act that way, eventually there's a part of you who will start to be able to see that. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm a flawed human being doing the best I can. I talked in my book about my sort of journey with self-affirmations and how they always felt like someone was just asking me to believe in Santa Claus and you can't really make yourself yeah. believe something. By the way, you are getting stronger every day. Yeah. I'm not. I'm 55. I'm not. It's from here. That's the truth. Yeah. The only one that ever really worked was when I finally started saying to myself, I'm allowed to be human. Yes, exactly. That's the truth. One of the sayings we have in the self-compassion world is the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess, mm. right? So you will still be a mess. I've been practicing for 30 years now. I still make mistakes, but I am a compassionate mess. So your, your goal shifts just from getting it right to being getting it, opening your heart. That starts to become your goal. And then when your heart's open, even when things are painful, your heart open feels good. To feel connected to all of life feels good. That actually becomes your primary goal. It doesn't mean you don't give up on all the other stuff as well, but it's not as important. The point is not to perfect ourselves, but to perfect our love, you know, and that when once you, you shift your aim in that way, then things are much more workable and much more doable. You are human. Yeah. Whenever people ask me, you know, I've been trying self-compassion and I'm just not very good at it. What do I do? I always say, well, I mean, then you can just have self-compassion about how hard self-compassion is. Absolutely. You start where you are. That's yeah. actually often what I say to people. What's your current source of struggle? I feel so frustrated because I can't seem to practice self-compassion. Well, what if a good friend came to you and said that? Would you say, you just because you're a stupid idiot, just give up? <laughs> no, you'd probably say, well, of course it's hard. You know, you're giving your history and it's challenging and, you know, you just take it day by day. And so that type of warmth and support you can give toward anything, including how hard it is sometimes to practice self-compassion. But you can also start small. 
you know, just a baby step. You're just like, oh, you know, just kind of like a little bit, just a little warmth can get your foot in the door. And then you build on that little bit of warmth, that little bit of understanding, having a tiny bit of patience. For some people, the path is, you know, you walk a little slowly, but you might go farther, right? So it's just about taking it moment by moment, trying to approach each moment with warmth, that sense of support. How can I help myself in this moment? One of the things that that I'm thinking about is because we talk a lot about, you know, what would a friend say? What would a friend say? And it's made me... what would I say to a friend? Yeah, what would I say to a friend? It's really made me realize how much even that is something we sometimes have to learn because for so much of my life, I would say to a friend, no, you're smart and beautiful and there's nothing wrong with you. And And I had to learn how to just hold space for a friend and say, yeah, "Yeah, maybe it was a fail. I fail too. People People fail. It doesn't change that I love you. It doesn't, it doesn't change mean that you're a failure. You. you fail doesn't mean you are a failure. Like you have to sum up the whole, your entire worth as a failure. But I think it's powerful that e- whether we're applying it to ourselves or trying to have compassion to others, sometimes yes. we really have been raised with the belief that it's about fixing it. It's about yes, convincing. Right. It's something entirely different. Yeah. You know, it's both, right? So that's why you have to talk about the fierce and the tender. My new book is called Fierce Self-Compassion because people get a little confused. We don't need to fix ourselves. We are fully worthy as we are. But some of our behaviors and our situations can use a little work. And that we need to honor that because if we don't, then that's not helping either. And so it's really disentangling our worth as people from some of our behaviors or situations, which, and you know, again, we just do the best we can. They aren't going to be perfect and that's okay, but we still try. And of course, as Carl Rogers said, the curious paradox is the more I accept myself, the more I can change, right? Because it gives us the emotional resources to try to make effective. I love the idea of fierce self-compassion and what that means about anger and women, because I feel like as women, we've been told that anger is not okay to have and that anger is a result of sort of maybe being unhealthy or not being at peace when self fear, self-compassion really reframes what that anger is about. Like you should be angry if you're being abused. You should be angry if other people are being abused. Yeah. So it's simple to say, it's not so simple to do, but simple to understand is when anger is aimed at alleviating suffering, it's helpful. And when anger causes suffering, it's not helpful, right? And so if someone attacks my child, you better believe I'm going to get angry. And that anger is an evolved emotion that's going to give me a lot of things. It's going to focus me. It's going to energize me. It's going to allow me to be brave. It's going to reduce the fear response so that I can protect my child. No, that anger is really useful in the moment, but it's aimed at alleviating suffering. Now, if the person who, you know, maybe, so maybe I stand up to that person, but once it starts getting personal and I start like getting angry at people and kind of dehumanizing them or harming them in some way, then it's no longer helpful, Hmm. but it has a role. It can be harnessed. We need to harness it for the alleviation of suffering. But if if we just cut it out, if we suppress it, if we say we don't have it, well, that disempowers us because anger is is an important source of power when it's harnessed and channeled correctly. And I can say easier said than done. And I still struggle, but it is something we don't want to reject. We want to embrace. Um, I can imagine that if you're caught up in a self-esteem sort of rat race where you have to be above others, anger becomes your weapon to push others down, to push others away, to tear them down, because that's the only way that you can feel good. But if if you've been practicing self-compassion, I imagine it's a lot easier to let anger be your advocate instead of, you know, harming people. 
Yeah, well, also when you accept this part of yourself, you know, there's nothing wrong with this part of yourself. In fact, it's very useful. Again, this is the but. It is a big but because what happens if we're angry is we just forget and we carry it away. So it is challenging, right, to work with. I'm not going to pretend it's not. I struggle. But it definitely has a role, especially when it comes to standing up to injustice. Because what happens is we can So the tender and the fierce need to be in balance. For two fears, if we're really angry, we have no tender acceptance of ourselves or others, then that's not good. But if we're too accepting and we, you know, there's no fierceness, then that's not good for ourselves or others, right? So it's really the balance. It's much, you know, we'll fall off balance and we try to reintegrate and it's a process. It's not like an end point we get to finally. That's really great. Well, I really appreciate the time that you've taken. It's, this is a topic that, is something that we could talk about for hours. But if people wanted to know more about self-compassion, where could they go to read your books and learn more from you? The easiest place to start is if you Google self-compassion, you'll find my website, selfcompassion.org. You can take a self-compassion test. You can read research. I have hundreds of articles on there by lots of different researchers. There's a guided practice. I've got uh, videos, things you can read. And then you can also links to order my books. I've got four at this point. So... And some of them are practice-based. Some of them are more just kind of talking about my own journey with self-compassion. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate every bit of it. You're welcome, Casey. It was fun talking to you. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.